If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put one in your hand. Luke chapter 22, since we already prayed, it's uh, our custom to pray for revival uh, for our nation, and we just kind of combine that with the trip, uh, but we've already done that, so we can get right into our study this morning, Luke chapter 22. Um, if you're visiting, we are getting near the end of this book. We just this uh, Wednesday started a brand new study series in the book of Proverbs called Rooted in Wisdom. I hope those of you that were here Wednesday enjoyed that. Uh, I am excited about what God is doing in this brand new study. We had uh, a good group, and uh, I hope that you'll come out on Wednesday nights because what God put in the book of Proverbs is really good practical teaching for your daily life. Lord, I need wisdom. How do I fight temptation? How do I deal with uh, the issues of life? And so we'll be going through those things. Uh, and then here in the book of Luke, we've been in the book uh, for quite some time. We're getting near the end. I think we'll be done completely in Luke in the book of June, and we'll jump into uh, the book of Galatians. But we're going to uh, pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 35, Luke chapter 22, verses 35, and I'll be reading through verse 46. 35 through 46. Follow along with me. And he said to them, When I sent you out, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack, and he who has a sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that your spirit move mightily in our midst. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your word. Give to each person the comfort, the correction. Lord, the care and, Lord, just that counsel that each heart needs. You know what each person needs. And, Father, we ask that uh, you would not leave us here the same as we came in. We'd be changed. We'd be transformed. We would be submissive to the will of God for our own life. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you'll recall that uh, all of this is taking place in the same setting. Well, until they now transition. Uh, they've been in the upper room. Remember that they, they were in the upper room and the first thing is Jesus led them in what? The Passover meal. Uh, we now today refer to the taking of communion 
or the Lord's Supper, but really what he was doing was the Passover meal. And remember, he uh, revealed things that no one had ever revealed about the Passover. You know, no Jewish boy had ever thought when he looked at a piece of unleavened bread that looks like the matzah, no, no boy had ever looked at that and said, hey, that's probably somebody hanging on a cross. That had, ne- that had never crossed any mind until Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. See, so let him in the Passover meal, and then near the end of the Passover meal, Judas slips out. This is all, I'm telling you, it's historically, here's the timeline. Judas slips out to do what? He goes to get the guards and the priest so he can go arrest Jesus. Now, Jesus hasn't left the upper room. At this point, they start to do what? They start debating among themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. We, we can understand how they could go from Jesus talking about his death to them debating about their greatness because they are human flesh like we are, and we can go from a spiritual high moment to really falling into the depths of our own self-absorption pretty quickly too, can't we? And so they were debating, who's going to be the greatest? Well, I'm a better speaker. I know the Bible better. Well, I was for Jesus up on the mountain of transfiguration. All the things that may have been going through the conversation, they're having that debate. And then Jesus silences that debate, and he tells Peter, oh, by the way, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, oh, of course I'm not. If you, if you even die, I'll die with you. Of course, we know that's not going to happen. Jesus will, Jesus will be correct. Peter actually will deny him three times. But Jesus said, hey, Satan's desired to sift you, Peter, but not you alone. Remember, the, the you is plural. He said that Satan had desired to sift all the disciples and that they would all end up, what, scattering like sheep. They would all deny him. They would all run. And he says, but... When it's all over, I'm going to have you strengthen the brethren. I'll bring you guys back. And so then we transition to what we just read. So this takes place. He tells Peter what's going to happen. He tells them the fact that they are going to stumble. And then he asks them these questions, starting in verse 35, about when he sent them out two by two. You might recall when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, he said, go out, don't take anything with you. Remember, if someone receives you, Go into their house. If they don't receive you, dust the, uh, dust, uh, the dust off your sandals and move on and go to the next house or the next city. And just anyone's going to receive you, preach the gospel to them, heal the sick, all those things. And he sent them out with nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have money on them. They didn't have extra sandals, no, no money bag, no knapsack, none of that stuff. Uh, they went out completely empty-handed, if you will. And he asked them, he said, how did that go? Did you lack anything? And they said, no, we didn't lack anything. So this, is, this conversation is still taking place where? In the upper room. This is kind of the last discussion there at the Passover meal before they transition to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you're taking notes, you see the, um, the title on the screen. I've titled today's time and the word, His Will is Enough. His Will Enough. And the question for you and I is, in our life, is his will enough? We could stop right there and be done and just meditate on that one for a while. Is his will enough for your life? Is his will enough for my life? Or do we need something else? We want to look at the first thing that he is having this discussion with disciples. Again, the close of this Passover meal. 
Uh, and if you're taking notes, I've titled this first uh, section of Scripture, Provision. So he asked them, did you lack anything? They say no. They didn't lack anything tangible. Uh, when he sent them out, he didn't send them with anything tangible. tangible. They didn't have these supplies that you would normally travel with. And their response is definitive, collective. It's speaking for all of them. All of them, it's a resounding nothing. We came back and remember what they stood, they came back, they raved about the mighty things God had done. None of them came back and said, we nearly starved to death. It was horrible. Somebody called us religious fanatics along the way. They didn't say anything like that. They simply said, no, everything you told us to do, we went and did, and it all worked according to plan. That trip was to be a faith-building trip to make clear to the disciples. When Jesus sent them out two by two, and he didn't send anything with them, that was a faith-building trip for what? That God was their provider. That he was the one, God said, I'll send you into these cities where they don't know you, you don't have any friends, you don't have any background, you don't have any money, you don't have any supplies, but God's showing them that he was the one that would open hearts, he was the one that would open doors, he was the one that would open the way for them to come into homes, he was the one that would open the opportunities in the cities. Christian, the doors we need to see open in this city, in high schools, uh, this coming Tuesday I'll be speaking at a local middle school, Fellowship Christian Athletes. I wasn't looking for it. They called me up. The opportunities that we need to get into colleges, to get into your uh, community, to have a conversation with your coworker who you know is depressed or whatever it may be, and they don't know the Lord, those opportunities, God's the one that can open them. We just have to be available to walk through those doors. And so that was a faith-building trip he'd sent them out before. Here, though, Jesus gives them a different set of instructions. This set of instructions would be more in line with what we would consider typical plans uh, in preparation for a journey, and a spe a specifically at the time of Christ. So when you think about these times, these things that he mentioned were normative things that someone would have if they were going to go on a trip, and they would go through multiple types of terrain, different regions, maybe some wilderness periods. You would, uh, you would certainly want to bring some money. Some money would be needed. If you were going to purchase food, if you had to purchase clothing, if you were staying at an inn uh, for a night, something like that, maybe even a few days. How about paying taxes? You know, if there was a local tax you had to pay, some money would be needed. What would the knapsack be for? Well, the knapsack might have some food in it, some hard bread, could have some dried fish, uh, you could have some extra clothing, perhaps a rolled up blanket could be used for cold or actually a pillow. Uh, other travel items could be in there, the backup pair of sandals that uh, Jesus references. The sword, what about that? Jesus said if you don't have a sword, sell the garment, purchase a, uh, purchase a sword. Well, that sword could be used against things like wild animals. At that time, uh, that part of Israel had lions. Even today in the wildernesses of Israel, uh, the southern part of Israel, they still have wild leopards that are still there even today. Uh, the ibexes you see everywhere, but they won't, they won't really bother you. They're just uh, mountain goats, if you will. But there was all other types of animals. Some of them were dangerous. Uh, you also had uh, robbers that would attack people, thieves that would attack, and uh, especially if they're moving through these narrow mountain passes, those were dangerous areas. Uh, the sword could be used for cutting, 
cutting up fish. If you caught fish and you had to scale it, you had to cut it up. Uh, it could be used for other types of uh, food cutting. If you had to cut leather straps or, or cut something down to size, all these could be used. Uh, the sword, it was more like a dagger. There was different variations of the sword, but it was more like a dagger. It could be two-edged, which you see that mentioned in Scripture, sharper than a what? Two-edged sword, but it was more like a dagger in length. There was different variations of this sword uh, that, was, that was common, at least for traveling. And so in the cultural sense, no one would think it was unusual if someone said, hey, if you're going to be traveling, make sure you have the money bag, knapsack, a sword. That was all normal things. But what Jesus is saying here to them when he says, make sure, remember, I sent you before with nothing. Now I'm telling you to pack like it's a normal trip. What he's saying here is more symbolic of their lives when he goes back to be with the Father. Oftentimes, Jesus is speaking to them in one sense, and they don't quite get what the sense he's speaking in. It'll come, it'll come a little clearer later. But much like... Um, much like our own lives, we generally have to employ the means of work, proper planning, saving, having the right things. Generally speaking, even if you're a Christian, you have to put gas in your car. Generally speaking, you say, I'm a person of faith, so I don't go to the gas station anymore. I just assume God is going to make my car run without gas because I'm that spiritual, right? So there is a, Jesus has given them practical guidance for the future that these things they're going to have to have because he's going to send them places and they're going to have to live like everyone else. When he's been with them, he's been doing the amazing thing, feeding 5,000, walking on water, doing all of these things. But he says, when I'm gone, you're going to have to live normal lives like everybody else, but I'll be with you. You're going to have to have these things. But we have to work, plan, prepare, and then we trust God for the results in our life. Not on, uh, now, on, I'll say this. N different than us, or unlike us, <laughs> even after Christ, understand that the disciples, their lives even after Jesus go back, goes back to heaven, is significantly different than ours. It's called the apostolic age. So understand that much of their life will be like ours, but part of it will not. Think about that after Christ goes back to heaven, the apostles, they'll still experience and perform some amazing miracles, each of them. Things that you and I will never do and have never done. Uh, they would have the power of the Holy Spirit upon them to authenticate the planting of the church. They would have these miracles that they would do at times, not always, but these things that would come upon them, like Peter would say, silver and gold I don't have, but rise and walk. He didn't do that every day, but on occasion the Holy Spirit would come upon them even after Christ would leave. Why? Because it would authenticate the resurrection, it would authenticate the Word of God, and that they would have to have the Holy Spirit breathe into them to write the Scriptures because some of the scriptures in the New Testament, not all, are written by the apostles. So some of these things wouldn't be like our life. They would experience the supernatural at times, but they also would have to be prepared to experience the mundane and also to kind of go through difficult places the same way you and I would 
with a little bit of God. All I have is this money in my pocket. All I have is this. Help me get there. They actually misunderstood Jesus' words here in one respect, and that is related to the sword. They say, Lord, look, we have two swords. We got a good start here. We could start an army. If we sell a few of these things, and all of us are double guns ablazing, right? If we each got two swords on each side, we've got a good start here. Let's start prepping and stocking up because, again, I don't know all the things that are going through their head. They don't fully understand. At one hand, they are sorrowful because they think something bad's about to happen to Jesus. They don't fully know what he's about to do. They're not sure, to, are we supposed to start a small guerrilla army? Uh, they're just all over the map. Sounds a lot like us at times, right? They don't really understand what he's saying. So they're like, hey, if, it, if you want us to get some swords, we can start. We've already got two. We've got a good start here. Notice Jesus' immediate response to their literal interpretation or misunderstanding of what he said. Look at his immediate response, verse 38. It is enough. It's enough. I'm not telling you to start a small army. I'm not telling you to be the second coming of the Maccabeans. Remember the Maccabeans were in the, the uh, intertestamal age, uh, the 400 years the si called, called the silent years. You know, they, they actually fought against Rome and won some significant battles. And, and maybe they think that, hey, we might lose our leader, but we might become a strong fighting force. Even when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter's going to take the high priest's servant's ear off. But that's not what he's aiming for. So they're not quite sure exactly what he's saying here. But he stops them in mid-sentence and says it's enough, and he doesn't say anything else more about it. And I believe that what this is telling us is Jesus knows that it's only going to be three days until he rises from the dead. They don't know he's going to go to the cross, even though he's told them. They don't quite get it. Three days later, he rises from the dead. And he knows that the Holy Spirit will then make all this conversation crystal clear after the fact. Sometimes you and I just have to wait a little bit on God before he makes things crystal clear in our life. Amen? You have to wait a little bit. Say, well, I don't understand. Well, don't move forward until you know and understand exactly. I'm not saying that you have to understand everything that God, if he's told you to go somewhere, just go ahead and go. Our team, you know, going to Guatemala, they might not understand all that we will or won't encounter, but we need to go anyway. But we wait for God to reveal pieces and parts that we don't understand. The Holy Spirit certainly will later on. And after he rises from the dead, they'll find out, they'll understand that this guidance was practical, but also faith-building as well. That he said, that what he said at the close of the meal was that, hey, no matter what, whether I send you out with something or nothing, I'm your provision. I'll provide for you. And this extends to us as well. But we still have to use the means God gives us. In this case, I've given you a little bit, he says, use these things. A couple swords, these uh, things that you have in your hand. Martin Luther said these words. Listen to what he said. He said, there's no doubt that God can take care of you in a miraculous way. But you must not pass up the opportunities that could provide the help you need. If you don't use what God has made readily available to you, then you are testing God. Don't test God. 
God tests us, but we don't test God. In our lives, we're to hear his call and be willing to step out, and then we're to pray in advance, and we're to pray through, and then we're just to prepare and use the means that he's provided. I gave the simple example of gas. If he's given you a paycheck, wisely use that paycheck. Put gas in the car. It'd be better to put gas in the car than rent 15 videos. Right? I believe God will give me more for the videos and the gas. Not until you're a good steward of what he's given you for the gas. So we've got to use the things that he's given us. God can do the supernatural at any time. You believe that? He can, all, he can still do the supernatural. He has no limits. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can still do the supernatural. If it's his will that he determines that he'll use supernatural means and provide, he can do that. As I mentioned, the apostles, they would do some great things, some miraculous things. They would stand up on the day of Pentecost. When they stood up on the day of Pentecost, they would have no idea that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in such a way that they would speak in their native language and everyone else would hear in their language and there's dozens of languages. That's pretty amazing. No United Nations headphones. No sophisticated modern software. No, they just speak. They're speaking and everyone around, it's speaking Hebrew, everyone around them hears them in their native tongue. Amazing. He can give someone the gift of languages. I believe the Apostle Paul was given the gift of languages. We knew he spoke multiple languages. A guy like George Mueller, even though he studied languages, came very easy to George Mueller. I believe he spoke five or six languages. He could speak Hebrew. He could, he could speak, I can't remember the ones he could speak. But anyway, uh, he originally learned Hebrew. But then he goes on, he grew up natively speaking German. But he could speak these multiple languages, and he could travel around Europe and say, hey, strike up a conversation. You want French? All right. But he can also, God can give someone the gift of language, but he can also sustain a missionary to spend 10 plus years learning a language. And then another 10 plus years translating the language. Because God also gives the gift of perseverance. It's a greater miracle sometimes when God does something that takes longer time than less time. Because which is harder for God? Instantaneously or over time? They're equal to him. And he doesn't look at time the same way we do. He's not bound by time. We're the ones that are confined to time for his purposes. Is it a greater miracle that he turns water into wine in a nanosecond? Or... Is it a greater miracle that he could actually send rain that comes out of clouds, that lands in dirt, that goes in the ground, that the roots of a grapevine actually suck it up into the root and actually put water into this little lump of a thing called a grape, and then sugar gets added somewhere along the way, and you have a grape? I think that's pretty amazing, don't you? And then when you squeeze it and actually let it ferment, then it becomes wine. But what part of the process does man have? The only one he has is to squeeze the grape and let it sit there. The rest of it is all a miracle. No one else can do that. No one else can do any of those things but God. All the important steps of winemaking aren't humanly possible. We just kind of pick up the last piece of the, of the process there. What are things you would like to do 
for God that you know you absolutely need his help with. One of my personal goals is to become fluent in Spanish. Just a goal of mine. I know I'm going to have to study for it. I cannot assume that I will wake up one day fully fluent. I, I do not have that assumption. That would be cool. That would be nice. But I'm not making that assumption. God could do that for several of us and many of us as the day of his approach draws near. If the need warrants, he could all of a sudden give many of us multiple languages because his return is that close. But we don't test God. We do what we are supposed to do today. And whether he provides me with the understanding or the time management or the patience or the perseverance to learn a second language, that might just be a bigger miracle than me just waking up knowing it. You know, when you look at your own uh, flaws and flesh. Our team headed to Guatemala. Uh, they needed, uh, all of them have needed to make some financial sacrifices. And, and some are still making some. And when they, I know that many of the team, when they looked at the numbers on paper, it didn't probably make all the sense to go. But they're going anyway. God has stepped in, and many of them are seeing those numbers make more and more sense the more the closer we get because God has provided. He's even used some of you to do that. But here's the point, Christian, what Jesus is saying. Guys, be ready. Take these things. Be ready to move. Be ready to go wherever I sent you. Christian, we're simply to pray, then plan, then proceed, then persevere, and watch God provide. Pray, plan, proceed, persevere, and then he will provide. And he's the one that provides at the outset in the first place. Let's take a look at what comes next here. So they leave. They have this discussion. Someone can advance that. Sometimes we have a snag back there. After these final words of the upper room and the Passover meal, Jesus heads to the Garden of Gethsemane. So they leave the upper room. These are kind of the closing words, and then they... Follow on out. Jesus heads to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is situated at the base of the Mount of Olives. So if you're, if you're standing in Jerusalem, you would be looking east. It's a short walk from the northeast walls of Jerusalem. Luke makes it clear that this was the place that Jesus often retired to. It says that uh, as he was accustomed in verse 39, this is the place that Jesus would often go when he was visiting Jerusalem. Now, some of you that may not be that familiar with the Bible, Jesus, yes, he visited Jerusalem for the major feasts, but he didn't live in Jerusalem. Where did he live? North in Galilee. He spent 80% of his ministry up by the Sea of Galilee. But when he visited Jerusalem, he loved to go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. It would be like, maybe you're in New York, you like to go for an evening walk at Central Park. But he didn't go for an evening walk, he liked to go there to pray. So he would often go into the Garden of Gethsemane when he was visiting Jerusalem. John's Gospel tells us he actually crosses over the small brook Kidron, which is there uh, running through that little valley in between uh, the city and uh, the Mount of Olives. So he crosses the Kidron, which means, you know the Kidron means? Dark and murky. And into Gethsemane, which means olive press. You get the picture? He's gone into a time that's dark, it's murky, and he's about to be pressed, walking in this dark, pressing time, without question, the darkest and most pressing time in all of human history, the days 
and the hours of the cross and leading up to it. The enemy was waiting. We know that Satan and his demons are chomping at the bit to put Jesus on the cross and to see God's son suffer. The enemy is waiting. The salvation of mankind is at stake. As Jesus is walking, he knows what's at stake, even though no one else hardly has any clue what he's about to do. And he proceeds to the garden. It was in the Garden of Eden, we talked about this on Easter Sunday, it was in the Garden of Eden that man rejected the will of God and brought the curse of sin and death on humanity. Now we have Jesus here in another garden, and listen to this. In the first garden, man rejected the will of God. In this garden, Jesus would what? Accept the will of God. And instead of bringing sin and death, he would reverse sin and death by accepting the will of God for all those who would believe in his name. As they head to the garden, Jesus is leading his disciples on a final open book test, if you will. All the times they've seen him pray before. They've seen him go off by himself early in the morning. They've seen him go off by himself to pray. The depth of what he's discussed to them even up in the upper room, all the depth of what he's mentioned, were they listening? They were all headed to a time of prayer, but obviously Jesus is the only one aware of this. They're headed to a prayer meeting, but they don't seem to know it's a prayer meeting. Many times, God wants you and I to head to a time of prayer, and we're unaware of it too. Amen? He wants us to head to a time of prayer, but we're unaware of it. But he makes them aware, and he makes us aware by his word. He knows a great time of a great time of testing, a great time of fear, a great time of grief is about to come upon him. And they're already, they're anxious, they're part sorrowful, they're amped up. They don't know whether to run, to fight, to hide, to sleep. Their faith will soon be shaken like a tree in a violent storm. You ever seen when a storm, it's like bending a tree where you're almost sure it's going to snap. And then somehow it doesn't. That's kind of how God's going to preserve them. They need to be prayed up and ready because Satan, he wants to sift them all as wheat. Jesus just told them that. We talked about it last week, but it was actually, it would be minutes ago in the actual timeline. Satan will soon be telling them what? He'll be whispering in their ear, abandon your master. Your master's gone. You followed him in vain. He's just a man like anybody else. He was killed like a common criminal. Give him up. Go back to your lives as fishermen and tax collectors and do whatever else you used to do because your Savior's gone. That's what he'll be telling them hours from this point. He instructs them to pray. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, verse 40. And the obvious and explicit reason here is cemented by Jesus, that they would not fall into temptation. The temptation to what? The temptation to deny Christ, the temptation to yield, to fear, the temptation to give up. You ever, be, you ever tempted to give up? You ever tempted to walk in fear? Hey, I'm tempted. I live there. You know, are you, whatever. you kidding? Right? <coughs> The temptation to doubt everything they've ever seen. All the miracles. If you've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, can you forget that in a moment? The temptation to say it's just not worth it. Temptation to return to their lives before Christ 
all those temptations would be there. I love this prayer from Isabel Kuhn. Isabel Kuhn was a missionary with her husband John uh, to China in the late 20s uh, through 1950. They were from uh, Toronto, Canada, uh, part of the Inland, Inland Mission, which uh, was started by Hudson Taylor. And listen to her prayer. Listen to this prayer. This is a great prayer that you can start praying tonight. This was her simple prayer, and I love it. It says, if this obstacle is from thee, Lord, I accept it. But if it's from Satan, I refuse him and all his works in the name of Calvary. Let me read that again so you can capture the essence. You can pray this simple prayer. You'll have things this week you might want to pray it for. If this obstacle is from thee, Lord, I accept it. But if it's from Satan, I refuse him and all his works in the name of Calvary. Calvary means cross, by the way. So anytime you hear Calvary, that's what it means. J.C. Ryle said, prayer is the surest remedy against the devil and besetting sins. Prayer is the remedy. Not vegging out. Not going for a run. Not two hours on the smartphone to just take a load off. Right? Prayer. Apart from being saved and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, prayer is our lifeline, Christian. It's our lifeline. Well, I'm not using the lifeline. Well, you need to start using the lifeline. If we remain without prayer, we'll fold and collapse spiritually like a house of cards eventually. We need prayer in our life. Jesus knows this. He's telling you guys have to pray. Nothing can replace prayer. We as a church, um, we have activity. We have passion here. We have participation. We have, we have some of the highest participation of people serving, I would say percentage-wise, at any church. We have participation, we have passionate people, we have projects going on, we have Bible studies, we have prayer times, we have outreach, but again, if our prayer time isn't anointed, and we don't have personal, if you don't have personal prayer lives, and we don't gather as corporate prayer, and it's just a kind of look, a throw in, hey, we'll tip in five minutes here and there then we're going to fail. Because your car, all the parts in the engine are needed. All the parts in the engine are needed, but you still have to have gas. All the parts are important. Preparation's important. Passion's important. Activity, <laughs> preaching, Bible studies, all important. But prayer is central. This week, the reason why I think the worship was so awesome this morning wasn't because the worship team's good and they practiced. That was important. They did practice, and they are good at what they do. But I believe it was the Tuesday night women's prayer and the Wednesday night men's prayer that activated the worship this morning. I could sense it. And immediately I felt the Spirit saying, it was prayer. Prayer is the fuel. The greater we have, the greater the prayer life of this church, the greater the impact on the world in this city. No question about it. Jesus wanted them to pray. They needed to pray. They had their instructions to pray. And now he leaves them, and he goes and finds his own place in the garden to pray to his father. Let's look at the next section of text here. Perspiration. It says that, uh, and Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I want to go through four things we observe here. The first thing we observe as Jesus enters into this time of personal prayer, it's just him and the Father. The first thing we observe is that Jesus goes to his knees. Look at the text. And he knelt down. Matthew says that he fell on his face. Mark says that he fell to the ground. And Luke says he got on his knees. All three record that he got prostrate before the Lord. Christian, if Jesus went to his knees, you can be sure that he wants us on ours at times. Unless you're physically unable to do so. And I know we've got some seniors here that can't get on their knees anymore, and God, God has grace for those years. But until you can't get on your knees, there's times you should get on your knees. There are times when we have to get on our knees and get prostrate before the Lord. Jesus sets the model for us. If you can't think of a time that you ever got on your knees, do it. There was a song back, Jackie Velasco used to sing it, it was in the 90s. I get on my knees. I don't know what it is. There's power when I get on my knees. It's true. It, all of a sudden, you'll be less distracted even. Prayer changed the posture and the position of the Son of God, and it should change our posture too. The second thing we observe is the prayer of Jesus. Father, if it's your will, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Looking at the other Gospels, they're all in agreement that these painful words reflect this conditional request Jesus makes to the Father. I say conditional because Jesus says, I'd like the cup to pass, but only if it's your will. That's conditional. I don't want it to pass unless it's your will. Let this cup pass only if it's the will of the Father, his desire was to subject, to be subject, uh, to subject his will to the will of the Father. If either option was okay, if the Father says, yes, son, you can have the cup pass, that's my will, or go to the cross, that's my will. If both options were available, that Jesus saying, if either option is available, I would prefer to have this cup pass. But they weren't equal options. And the Father was requiring the cup because the cup was his will, and the cup of the cross was the will of the Father to save the world through the blood of his own son, which was foreshadowed all the way back when Isaac was laid on the altar and Abraham was there. If God had said, son, you can go either route and not sin, but my will is the cross, Jesus would have still submitted to the cross. Did you hear that? If God said, either route you can go, but my will is the cross, guess which one Jesus would have chose? He would have chose the cross. And he did submit to the cross because that was the Father's will. How about us, Christian? Is it our, is it our desire to be subordinate to the Father's will? Think about it. In your own mind, do you desire to do God's will? Think about this hypothetical uh, question or, or um situation I'll pose to you, just to search our own hearts. This is hypothetical. You've already repented, and you've asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You've turned from sin, and God comes to you with two choices. Here's the two choices. God comes to you with two choices. You're saved, you've repented, you're following him now, and God says, number one, 
He'll allow you to become a multi-millionaire, perfect health, healthy kids, long life, very few problems in your life, very few issues, and with your tithes and offerings and your regular church attendance, he'll allow your life to have some eternal impact. Some eternal impact, but far, far less than the second option. And he says that when you get to heaven, you'll have one crown to put at his feet. That's option number one, hypothetical here. Option two, you won't be a millionaire or anything close. There's no guarantee of personal success. You'll encounter multiple times that will challenge your faith, including family situations, finances, health, job situations, and ministry service and fatigue. But he promises to pour out on you the power of his Holy Spirit. He promises that you'll see amazing spiritual works of God. He'll give you a deep burden for souls, a deep love for people, a passion for serving, and an eternal impact on many, many lives. Oh, and by the way, he says in heaven, you'll have many crowns to cast at the feet of Jesus. And then he tells you that his will is option two, but you're still free to choose option one. What would you choose? Well, did you say I still get to heaven? Yeah, yeah, you still, you have one crown. You're going to have a millionaire life, basic, easy street. You're going to have some impact with your tithes and offerings. But the second option is actually my will. Which one will you choose? Which one would you choose? I, guess, I bet you I know which one the apostles would choose because they chose option two, didn't they? And they shook the world upside down in the process. Let's turn our attention back to Jesus. He's fully submissive to the Father's will, and the weight of the cross is now incredibly heavy on him. He's in such travail that we see the third observation of his prayer. An angel is sent, verse 42, verse 43. He's in such deep heaviness that God sends an angel from heaven. Now, he did this earlier, not an angel, but on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah show up. Do you know why they show up? To strengthen Jesus for the cross. He sends an angel from heaven. Almost makes you want to cheer when you see the angel from heaven come to, because you're, you're excited at your Savior, God sending an angel because you know, wow, you're reading the text, you're like, wow. Christian, when we need it, God will send something from heaven to strengthen us when we need it. At the right moment, might not be an angel, or it could be one, you just don't see them. When God knows that you need it, he'll send something from heaven. Choose his will, and he'll be there to provide what you need. Look at the last and fourth observation of Jesus' prayer here. And being in agony, we see the blood of his sweat. So he's not just sweating now. His agony is so intense, his perspiration becomes drops of blood. Medically, this is called hemat uh, hematidrosis. And it's been observed. You know what's been observed in people? Hematidrosis. People sweat turning to blood. People awaiting execution. Jesus is awaiting execution. Isn't that amazing? The one place that it's observed, even in the modern age, is people waiting for execution. Because the pressure is so intense. Can you imagine it? And there he is on the ground. And then finally he rises to come back to the disciples who are sleeping. They're sleeping. They're white. You know, Jesus is white too. And he's asking them, 
We look at this last section. He knows they're sorrowful, but he also knows they're confused, and he also knows that their flesh is still very weak. Did you know that at the same time, uh, one of the other Gospels records that Jesus says these words, and you know them well. I quote them to myself all the time. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is where Jesus says that. This is the text, because he says to people who are wiped out, tired, sad, distraught, I can't do it. And Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Now more than ever you need to pray. But I'm so exhausted, tired, distraught. Pray. You might get something supernatural from God then. Amen? That's when he comes. And we want to close with this last uh, point, protection. Because Jesus revisits this. Verse 45 when he'd come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, now he knows they're sorrowful, but notice the firmness in what he says anyway. Because you would say, well, if they're sorrowful, why didn't he just throw a blanket on them and say, you guys stay asleep? Is that what he says? No. He says, why do you sleep? Rise. How non-compassionate of Jesus. They're tired. They're worn out. They're sorrowful. They're finally catching some Z's. Wouldn't he let them sleep? No. Because he has way beyond, he has strength and power way beyond the physical realm that they are under. And Christian, God has a strength for you way beyond what you know and I know. Amen? So at times, he's not going to say, well, you just stay asleep because you're sad. He says, rise up and pray because you're about to enter into major temptation. I'll readily admit that some of the things that I repeat again and again to you, to you, you're probably tired of hearing. And I'm tired of having to repeat them. But then as I read the Bible, the next chapter says the same thing, and I have to repeat it anyway. I don't repeat stuff for the sake of it. I repeat it because we go verse by verse of the Bible, and God repeats things. But let's ask ourselves, if what God says to us, he said to them at the beginning, pray that you don't enter temptation. He goes off, he sweats drops of blood, they fall asleep. He comes back to them. He says it again. This time he wakes them up and says, pray that you not enter in temptation. If God repeats something, why has he said it, and are we to be listening to what he's saying? I believe yes. Stewardship is saying what needs to be said, doing what needs to be done. Jesus never shrank back from saying what needed to be said, doing what needed to be done. And he would say it in spite of the discomfort of those around him because he was loving them for what they needed, not what they thought they needed. That's the way God works with us. God will repeat. And have prophets and pastors repeat. And have you repeat what must be emphasized for the protection of souls. He's, gonna have, he's not going to have you repeat unimportant things. He has you repeat the important things to your children, to people you're to disciple, to people I'm to disciple. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he once again warns and teaches them. Even at this moment, he's having a teaching moment. He's having a warning moment for them. And he's doing it out of his love and his obedience and his surrender to the Father's will because the Father wants not only the Son to go to the cross, but he wants the disciples to grow in this process. Even in the most intense time of prayer, the world has ever seen. What Jesus has just exhibited, the most intense time of prayer the world has ever seen. 
this incredible display of the surrender of the will of God, Jesus still manifests the comprehensive will of God to care for the disciples. Because what he's doing is caring for them at this point. He loves them more than anyone else. God's will is that these men and every Christian would be what? Overcomers. In the scripture it says, we are to be overcomers. Over the, he who overcomes the world, not those who are overcome by the world. And even Jesus, in his own great need here, he's got his own great need, displays the will of God caring for them. And he shows them that by his care and lovingly rebuking them, even with these final minutes, even with these final minutes, he's bidding them to grow in their faith to grow in their prayer life. Satan was sifting, they were what? Sleeping. Satan was sifting, they were sleeping. These men who were soon to be the leaders of the church, they were going to become great men of prayer. Isn't that great to know? They were going to become great men of prayer. But on this night, they failed. Christian leaders, including pastors, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, and hey, 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 Time out. Guess who else is in this list? Christian fathers. Hey, how'd they make in the list? They're not pastors, elders, deacons, ministry leaders. I don't know. Christian fathers are in this list too because they've been given a ministry called a little church called the home. Yeah. Christian fathers, a little church called the home. All godly men are required to pray, to be protected through prayer, and to hear from God through prayer. Charles Spurgeon said, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure and intensity of your prayer. That's the spiritual thermometer. Listen to these words of wisdom and warning from A.W. Tozer. I, this was in my study yesterday, and it had to sneak into today's message. Sorry. We're almost done, but you want to hear this, guys. He's speaking to the men here. Because these disciples are going to be the leaders of the church. And listen to what he says. He says, let us not, uh, he says, let us watch that we do not slide imperceptibly to a state where the women do the praying and the men run the churches. Men who do not pray have no right to direct church affairs. We believe in the leadership of men within the spiritual community of the saints, but that leadership is to be won by spiritual worth. Leadership requires vision. And whence will vision come except from hours spent in the presence of God and humble and fervent prayer? All else things being equal, a praying woman will know the will of God for the church far better than a prayerless man. See, I don't get to preach on Father's Day. I'll be coming back from Guatemala. Randy's preaching. So, dads, I get a, I get a short, short opportunity here. But here's what he's saying. He ends up saying, the accident of being a man is not enough. Spiritual manhood alone qualifies. What he's saying is that just like the disciples had to learn, they could not be the leaders of Christ's church until they became mighty men of prayer. And Jesus is instilling that. He said, you've seen me do it again and again, and tonight you saw me do it with blood running down my face, the intensity of his prayer life on his knees. On this night, these men were physically asleep. And for us, it's a picture of being what? Spiritually asleep. That's what the picture is. It's a picture of us being spiritually asleep. 
God's will that night was for them to be in prayer. They failed, and guess what? We've all failed in this area, haven't we? Nobody here has aced this one. But Jesus passed an infinitely harder test and accepted the perfect will of the Father. And his prayers, it covered their weaknesses, didn't it? His prayers covered their weakness and, again, their later failures. Isn't it wonderful to know, as we come to a close here, isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus had been praying over them and their failures even before they failed? Remember what he had said. He said, when you, when you mess up, when you deny me, I've prayed for you that you'll come back and strengthen the brethren. He had prayed for their failures before they failed. He had told them that Peter would eventually come back and strengthen the others. On this night, they would stumble. But they would learn their lesson, and they would become men surrendered to the will of God. Men who were surrendered to prayer. Men who would later see its power and protection on their lives. How about us, church? Have we learned? Have we learned from Jesus to accept God's will? His perfect will is enough. Like Isabel Kuhn's prayer, if the obstacles are from God, let's accept them. But if they're from Satan, let's refuse them in the name of the cross. Ask ourselves, have we learned our own lessons to become people of prayer? We can learn from the disciples' failure, which is a great way to just watch someone else say, I, that, I can learn from that. But we certainly can learn from our own failures because we've all failed enough that we must take the time to develop the habit of prayer and to take new steps in our prayer life. God's will is for us to pray. God's will is for us to go forward, to trust his grace, to trust his protection, to trust his provision. I say this, why don't we collectively say yes and commit by faith to doing it? He'll help you keep the commitment. It's my life verse. Now, whom I believed in, he is able to help me keep that which I've committed. The will of the Father was enough for Jesus. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer, which is actually the model prayer. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That was when he taught him about prayer earlier in the ministry. The will of the Father was enough for Jesus. Is it enough for us? I pray that it is. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do desire to trust in you. Lord, even when we're maybe down, discouraged, fatigued, attacked, Lord, if you've allowed it, you allowed those things to come to your own son. And Lord, he, he won the victory on his knees. I pray, Jesus, that you would teach us at Calvary Chapel of Richmond to win victories on our knees. Not through talking them out, not through workshopping them, not through coming up with a better mousetrap, but to simply get on our knees and get wisdom and strength from heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.